Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 150 of Maximize Your Influence. Steve Olson here, along with the trusty Kurt Mortensen. We're locked and loaded for another episode. Kurt, how's summer been treating you so far? We're in the home stretch. Home stretch? It's still kind of hot, but I'm a little concerned because I just found out that here in a few weeks I'm going to Doha and Salala. Any idea where those are? I have some ideas. I just found out. I didn't even know Salala is in Oman. And of course, we know Doha's in Qatar, but here's what I'm concerned about because you brought up summer is that I believe Saudi Arabia was 127 degrees last week. And yeah, we thought it was hot here. Yeah. That's some serious heat. Yeah, if they didn't have all that oil, I don't know if anybody would live there. Well, that's what made the oil. It just kind of boiled, <laughs> yeah. boiled, boiled the dinosaurs into oil and just sat there for millions of boiled years. Boiled sand but, and dinosaur bones. Yeah, and it's the type of place where you keep your suit on most of the time because that's what they expect. So that's, yeah. Gee, so, Las Vegas looked like preschool. Yeah, 127. And I don't know if you were with me. Going to Vegas, they cancel a lot of those flights, those smaller planes. They can't fly in that thin air, and you have to take the big old boys in, so the small planes don't even work in that type of temperature. All right, well, wear your suit in uh, Qatar, or Qatar. I know there's <laughs> conflicts about how that is yeah, A lot of pronounced. conflicts. Yes. <laughs> Even there, they, I've heard it both ways. So I'm like, come on, pick one and go with it. Just tell me the right one and I'll use it. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Well, okay, that's good. Kurt's off to uh, the Middle East once again, which happens from time to time. So we will await your report. Always entertaining to hear. And they're certainly hungry to learn about personal development and sales skills over there, so... Great market. Cool idea you've cornered there. Yeah, very hungry. Want to be entrepreneurial, want to learn the skills. And it's you know, just hungry, just wanting to learn. And I think sometimes in the United States, we've got some people get past that. They're just not as hungry as they used to be. But it's the skill. The more you learn, the more you earn. We've heard that before. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. So we're going to kick off the show. And I need Kurt to do what he does best and hit that Urkel button. Hit it with a vengeance, buddy. Oh, here's the vengeance. I'll slightly tap it. Go, Urkel. <laughs> slightly tap it. Found a pretty interesting article. I'm going to handle it today because every now and then, Kurt just can't put up with it anymore. He hates Steve Urkel. I don't know what his problem is, but this is a really great article from a newser where I get a lot of articles. Newser is a great service, everybody. I do not get paid or compensated in any way, shape, or form by newser.com, but... You can install the app on your phone or just go there from your iPad or whatever, and bam, you get an overview on the news for the day. You know, maybe it's time for a sponsor. Maybe it is. I ought to give them a call. There we go. This article is entitled, How Korea Bought Its Way Into American Stomachs. And the subheading is, hey, it worked for Thai food. (laughs) I I didn't know what it did. But uh, some good points that the article makes. A website called Gastro Diplomacy. It started with Thailand. In 2002, there were 5,500 or so Thai restaurants in the world, most of which were in Thailand. And then the government down there launched Global Thai. Now there are more than 15,000 Thai restaurants around the world. Tourism in Thailand has increased nearly 200%, with many of those new visitors citing the cuisine as a major reason for their trip. Kind of a weird form of the law of obligation expose people to the product, they're going to like it. So the article is all about how now it's Korea's turn. Uh, Korea has become a food phenomenon in the United States. 
tourism has increased 70% to South Korea over the last few years. A lot of it having to do with that hot sauce. You ever use sriracha? Do you like sriracha? Yeah, a little zing. That's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So Korean tacos, all kinds of Korean fusion cuisine here in the United States has really, really pumped up the tourism. So this is a formula that countries are taking note of. And uh, maybe we should open up a wager the next country to try to do it. But you can definitely see that that's become more trendy. And when people are booking vacations, starting to think about Korea and Thailand. Hmm, that is interesting. That's a great marketing technique. Definitely a ninja, but you have to be careful. See, Thai food's awesome. Those have been a Thailand. I mean, that's good food. I know you love Thai food, and Korean food's good. You've got the bulgogi. You've got, you got to be careful. Kimchi takes a little while to get used to, but people really like it. You just have to make sure you're a country with really good food. <laughs> <laughs> there are some countries out there, and let's, let's offend some people right yeah, now. Yeah, how about it? One would be Ethiopian food. Really not that good. Sorry, <laughs> our Ethiopian listeners. <laughs> Russian food. I know we have Russian listeners. There's some good things there, but you know you don't see a lot of Russian restaurants out there. Maybe that's what they need to do is pick the good things and maybe promote it there. But you have to make sure you've got a food that's going to resonate with your audience before you drop all this money and expect them to come to visit. That would be the only drawback I would see. I'm pretty adventurous of food, but there's some countries where, yeah, no, you need to go back to drawing board. I know you've been doing it for thousands of years. But you need to get some new Start food. over, yeah. Yeah. And that's what's happening with England. They, fish and chips isn't there anymore. Their national dish is now curry, so they've, they've switched it up. <laughs> well, I can almost hear the emails coming in confronting you on your unbridled racism towards <laughs> Ethiopians and Russians, which, hey, you know what? If you're going to be that way, that's an interesting combo. Well, there's some good things with Russian food. It's just different. But with Russian food, I remember going to a Russian restaurant in Toronto, you rent the restaurant out for the whole night. You had the table for the whole night. They'd have a first course comes, and they drink and dance, and then another course comes, they drink and dance, and it was 4 a.m. I'm like, I got a flight in a couple hours. I got to get home. The amazing thing with Russian restaurants is you just don't see that many of them. Maybe it's because that's how they do it. It's well, You're in all night. It's just not going to eat, and a lot of cultures probably wouldn't want to spend eight hours eating every night. Well, when the vodka's flowing like it does at those places, you're going to stay all night. <laughs> I think that's part of the catalyst to keep them dancing and staying all night, probably because they can't drive home. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think any Russians would disagree with our assessment here. They're not offended. They're like, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Russian listeners, let us know. Ethiopian listeners, get us your hate mail. but Or send me a dish that's a little more likable. Maybe I ordered the wrong thing. That could happen, but I ordered quite a few things, and none of them just sat well on my palate. Yeah, Kurt and I both travel a lot, so the, the gauntlet is down. Tell us where the best Ethiopian restaurant is in the United States, in your opinion, because we don't make it to Ethiopia much. No, no yeah, offense, but we've, we haven't made it out there yet. Not a lot of companies pay us to train in Ethiopia. Well, not a lot. None. <laughs> Zero, <laughs> Zero companies pay us. <laughs> but uh, if there's something in New York or, or Florida or San Francisco, let us know, and we will report, as we have been known to talk about food on the show before. So plenty of food and offense on today's episode, Kurt. Yeah, we uh, get back to the offense list. Countries, people, companies we've offended, but I guess that's good. Well, we've had all these guests on lately, and they're just too nice. They're just really nice people. Maybe we should, maybe we should make them offend somebody. We tell them to do a blunder, but we ought to say, hey, you know, pick a company. Let them have it. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Name names. <laughs> Name names. Dish dirt, as they say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like it. Well, Kurt and I were talking before the show. We make it a point to uh, you know, at least one out of every four shows to do some show prep. <laughs> it's all on this week. So 
We were talking about some topics and what we've been hearing back from persuaders and, and people who are in the sales business. And, you know, we've got these political movements happening right now, the presidential election coming up. According to both sides, we have massive problems and, and everybody's struggling more than ever before. And, and maybe that's the case for you. Maybe it's not. There is money flowing in the economy once again. It's not as much as what it used to be, but you know, people are buying. And when you're in sales, what that does is it starts to create competition. In a down or sideways economy, you're just trying to get somebody to pay attention to you and to buy something. When people are spending money again, now you're competing against everybody else who's competing for those same dollars. And uh, the marketing gets turned up. Everybody wants to make money. So we have this problem where salespeople, a lot of times, they'll create a bunch of dissonance, they'll create a bunch of pain, and then another guy walks away with a sale. This happened to me a ton of times. You just It drives you nuts. So are you closing, are you setting appointments basically for the competition? And how do we stop doing that if that's the case? That's what we're gonna talk about today. Kurt, how do people do this? What are some of the things that make them sell for the competition? Because I think a lot of our listeners may not even know that they're doing it. Yeah, it's what I call you. You create the itch and someone else gets to scratch it, or you create the hunger and someone else gets to feed them. A couple examples kind of illustrate this point. We see those car dealerships. After the 10th car dealership, you're just so sick of shopping, you buy it there. And why do they buy it there, not the, the seventh one or the fifth one? Or a couple of things that have happened to me. I was doing lunch with a real estate agent and kind of depressed. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, you know, my neighbor, one of my best friends, used a different real estate agent. I'm like, Really? And uh, he was perplexed because he sat down with his neighbor and says, I'm a real estate agent. I'm your friend. Why didn't you use me? He's like, oh, yeah, you are a real estate agent. (laughs) So part of it is getting people to know what you do and how you can solve their problems and being very careful because a lot of people will knee jerk to the lowest cost solution. And this happened to me. I was with this uh, nutritional company. It was network marketing, top of the line products, very expensive And uh, they talked about how you need to take pills, you need to take nutritionals. You're not getting enough nutrients from your food. I'm like, yeah. And so they created this itch that I needed to scratch, that I needed to take a pill. I needed some nutritionals. So I went to Costco and got a thousand antioxidants for what, $10 instead of spending $200. Was it a a whole pallet of them? (laughs) It was a whole pallet of them. Found out later that they call those bedpan bullets, and we won't explain why. (laughs) Or maybe they will. They go right through you. Your body. I know, but that's what they call them. That's what doctors call them. We take all these pills, they go right through us. But I found out later that this other product was a lot better. And when you divided the nutrients you got, it was actually cheaper than Costco. But I went out and I scratched the itch. And that happens a lot of times. As you build this pain, you create this itch. You get people hungry. They're concerned. They need to solve it. But for some reason, you gave them time to think about it. You didn't close the deal. Now they need to solve this problem. And they've already left you. They're going to find... Somebody else they trust, they're going to find a cheaper solution. That's why I've told people so many times in this show, when you believe in your product or service, you have a moral and ethical obligation to persuade them because if you don't, they're going to go someone else that's cheaper, that's inferior, that's not going to serve them, that's not going to help them, that's not going to solve their problem. That's why it's so important that if you're going to create the itch, you're going to create that hunger, you've got to be able to solve it. You've got to be able to satisfy it or they're going to go someplace else. Is there a way to tell? I mean, somebody's just going from car dealer to car dealer, like you alluded to before, or nutrition company to nutrition company. They're really already on that road to settle on the bedpan bullets, which I'm going to have trouble getting that out of my head. (laughs) Truly truly disturbing. For some reason, I can hear a ding 
<laughs> That's even more disturbing than what I said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man, that probably worked though. But so, how do you know if somebody's just gonna do? I mean, can you stop that process, or are you just is this fate? You're just one of the body bags along the way till the sale happens. Yeah, you've got to know. You've got to build the trust, obviously, in the rapport. We've talked about it. You've got to find out what they're paying, and you've got to be a solution to that pain. And if those things are all in place, and they're waffling, uh, I don't know. I need to think about it. I need to go shop place else. What if I find it cheaper? I love what a lot of the audio video stores do to where you're looking at the TV. It's a 1000 bucks. You know you need one. You're supposed to go home when you're tired with shopping. But what if it's cheaper someplace else in the back of their mind? I love it when companies say, look. You know, I know that you're going to be looking around doing some other things. Why don't you go ahead and take it? I know you're tired of looking. And if you find it cheaper anywhere else, we'll double the difference back, right? And so you've given this little guarantee to where, okay, you've solved their solution. There's no reason to look. And chances are they're not going to look. You've already solved their problem. They needed the TV. Giving somebody a guarantee or a warranty at that moment can be very helpful when they're sitting on the fence like that. Again, we only use guarantees when people are sitting on the fence, but that's something when you can see them waffling, the what if, what if, what if, I can find it cheaper, what if I can find it better, that's a great way to help out is give them a guarantee and say, yeah, let's do it. And if for any reason you find it cheaper or for any reason you're not happy in 90 days, if for any reason you don't double your income, here's the guarantee and that makes a big difference. I've heard people say this and I've experienced this myself, that when you're close to closing a deal, somebody's about ready to make a decision. And then they say, ah, well, let me go talk to the boss or I'm going to go think about this. You're done. It's over. Is that true? Statistically, yes, but I don't think so. I mean, there's that chance. If it's a knee-jerk reaction, if they say, well, I'm going to talk to the boss. And you say, okay, well, what are you exactly going to talk to him about? Well, everything. You never had the sale anyway, right? right. <laughs> it's just a knee-jerk reaction. They're just getting rid of you. But also remember in that situation, if they do need to talk to the boss, you need to dig a little deeper and find, okay, what are you going to talk about? And remember... This lesson we've all learned a thousand times is no one can persuade better than you can about your product or service. Yeah. And if they're going to try to persuade their boss to go with you and your company and your product or service, it's not going to happen because they're going to stink at it because they don't know all the hot buttons. They don't know all the features. They're not going to remember everything. So you need to be in that meeting or you need to prep them for that meeting. Then you can get that sale. Well, you blew it on the front end on that one too. You kind of deserved it if you didn't qualify that they're the decision maker, did you not? Absolutely. Well, some people lie. They like, well, yeah, the decision maker, and they'll kind of backtrack on you. But you do want to find out now who's involved with making the decision. Do that up front. Create the rules, the ground rules for the sales process, and people appreciate that. So you're the final decision maker on this. Anybody else you need to talk to, find out up front. So, yeah, I agree. You, you blew it because you didn't find out exactly who was going to be making the decisions. Right, right. And I've found, too, that uh, when somebody, when you get the feeling that they're just treating this as a, a casual information-gathering expedition, Right? Maybe they are going out and getting information to report and give it to the boss. Uh, you got to kind of give that back. right? Give that same attitude back and be casual about it. Don't give your whole heart and soul to this presentation to somebody that can't even make the decision. What do you think about that? Yeah. You want to give them a little bit, keep them excited, and maybe schedule another appointment and so to make sure you're on top of the list. Set those ground rules ahead of time as far as maybe the time frame, who the decision makers are, how things are going to work out, how you're going to solve their questions. That gives you more credibility, but it also gives you a little more control in the sales process. Okay, so we're assuming then that we are talking to the person that can make the decision because we've danced around that a little bit. So you're talking to the right person. What is the, the best formula for when it comes to questions, getting them to open up, 
should we be checking ourselves going, hey, you know what? I've been talking for about five minutes. I got to shut up and ask some questions here. Absolutely. You should have those trial closes. Do you see how this would work for you? Does this solve your solution? When you get their head shaking up and down and getting those yeses, now you know on the right track. And keep them talking. Don't go into vomit mode, but keep them talking. If we implemented this in the next couple of weeks, do you see how that would save you money? And that's going to tell you a lot throughout that process to let you know you're on the right track. Okay. Okay. Well, what else should our listeners know about not closing deals for the competition or at least getting deals warmed up for the competition? Well, one reason is you're not creating enough scarcity or urgency, right? You have not given them a reason to make a decision today. Now, that's not going to happen all the time, but they might need to think about it. They might need to take it to a committee, but you need to create urgency or scarcity that you need a decision in two weeks, that the deal expires in two weeks, that the sale ends today. As long as it's believable and legitimate, that's important. You've got to create enough urgency and scarcity that they're going to miss out. And when you trigger that button that they're going to miss out, the decision's easy. They don't want to look elsewhere. They know that this is a great deal. And that's part of this too is have you created a deal to where they're buying a $1,000 product for $100 in their mind and there's urgency and there's a reason they need to do it today. That's another way to stop people from going to your competition. Right, right. Effective and genuine scarcity. Exactly. It's effective, it's genuine, and it's believable. I don't care if it's the truth. Well, I do want you to tell the truth, but the truth isn't always believable. Believable is the important thing here. And let them know why the sale ends today. Let them know why the product cost is going up in two weeks. And so that really helps in that arena of creating it. It's abused and overused. We all know that. But the human brain subconscious triggers need that scarcity, that urgency to make a decision sooner rather than later. I feel like I need to tell the listeners that you have to invest in creating genuine scarcity. And the payoff isn't always immediately clear. It's not always immediate. I market investment properties, and when we do a development, we only have a certain amount, right? I, I can't put more properties on the dirt. I have legitimate scarcity here, don't I? Yeah, and let them know that, okay, there's so many units available. We did 10 last week, and that's a big part of it. Yeah. Legitimate scarcity, and think it through. You can't say, well, if you don't do it today, I'm not going to like you anymore. <laughs> Probably not good scarcity, but legitimate, believable scarcity can get people to act real fast. That's what I've seen with this is when I talk about making an investment in genuine scarcity, your prospects have been trained to not believe you and, and you can't blame them. I mean, how many going out of business furniture store sales have they seen? How many have you seen, <laughs> yeah. right? People don't believe this stuff. There's going to be another sale coming along. It's going to happen again. And so I tell people, hey, we've got X amount of properties available still. If you would like to move forward, here's what I need from you. And I need it by this date. And I think on my first conversation with an investor, 90% of them don't comply with the deadlines that I give them. And what always happens, and I, I notice that this creates huge momentum, is inevitably they'll come back to me a few months later. Oh, I'm ready now. Oh, well, I'm sorry that project sold out. And what does that do when we release the next project? <laughs> now we have genuine scarcity and nothing gets people off the sideline more. And I had to invest in that. That took months and months of having faith in the process. But I'm here to tell you, listeners, that if you, do, if you invest in the genuine scarcity, it will pay off. It certainly will pay off and you'll get sales a lot easier and people will view you as a straight shooter. And it goes a long way towards building trust. And here's the magic bullet with that. And this is what you use is you combine scarcity with social validation. So if there's only 10 units left and they go to one of the units and there's three or four people looking at it, <laughs> or there's a sold sign on each side 
that's social validation. Now you've got a double whammy and a big reason for them to make a decision right away. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Kurt, anything else that we need to know about uh, making sales for the competition here? Let me revisit the guarantee because this is hard for entrepreneurs. The guarantee is so important when people are sitting on the fence because they're just sitting on the fence. And when you could come with a great big guarantee, it could double your sales. That's important. You need to take a deep breath, swallow if you need to, and come up with the most incredible guarantee that's legal, that's legit, that you can do. For example, I know when I'm speaking to an audience, it's what I do. I have 90 minutes to persuade them to like me and to buy my products at the back of the room, right? You've all seen those. I do that. It's a lot of fun for me. But I have found when I can give an incredible guarantee, so if I'm talking to a group of entrepreneurs and say, look, I guarantee in the next 60 days you use this, that it will double your income. And if it doesn't double your income, return it. No questions asked. I'll let you keep all the bonuses and I'll give you $100 just for trying it. Now, to a lot of entrepreneurs, it's like, oh, what if? Well, what if they do it? And they get scared. Nope, it doubles sales. Are there a few people that are dishonest in the world that will like it, duplicate it, send it back, and want their $100? it's few and far between. If that's doubling your sales and you get a few people that are dishonest and ethical, you're still doubling your sales and make your money. So take a deep breath. Come up with an incredible warranty, a guarantee that'll just blow people's minds to where they say, here's the key, I've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. Yeah, just a complete no-brainer that just makes them get off the sideline no matter what. And they have to believe you and trust you and there has to be a need there. So this is where they're sitting on the fence. Everything to gain, nothing to lose. Take a deep breath. It will double your sales with a great guarantee. Sounds like we need to do an episode on, on the unbeatable guarantee, just something that's going to yeah, be... Yeah, that would be a good one. Yeah, I think it would be a good one. That would be a good one. Just to mention to our listeners, back on Podcast 67, we did talk a little bit about scratching the inch. We went a little bit deeper in that. That's available on universityofpersuasion.com, free membership. You have access to all, all our archives of all the podcasts, and that'll go a little bit deeper on what you're doing that's causing people to run to the competition. Great. Great. All right. Well, it's time to wrap up the show, Kurt. Why don't we queue up the ninja? Ooh, ninja, go! It's not often that we get to make a big national company the ninja, right? We, we love That's to hate true. the big national companies because they're so bureaucratic <laughs> and they make you feel like you're a number, right? We've all felt that way, especially with airlines and hotels and large retailers and those kinds of things. But, and hey, we get it. We get it. If you're a big business, you have to systemize things. You have to have a process in order to have any kind of efficiency. And inevitably, this makes people feel like numbers. This makes prospects feel badly. And I really respect it when a big corporation steps in and fixes something like that. Because if there's a fail-safe where they can go, hey, our system broke down here. You know, we need to have somebody that makes six figures give this guy a call <laughs> and fix it and treat him like a human. This happened to me. The ninja for the week is National Car Rental, who I've actually always loved. I think they do a good job. I've tried all the others. I've tried Avis and Hertz, and a National has that executive aisle where you can just go pick any car you want. That's always cool, because other companies would just assign me some random car. It makes me feel like I have a choice. Took a little trip down to Houston, Texas a couple months ago, rented a car. I think I landed at midnight in Houston, and I stumbled out to the car lot and got in the car and drove off to my hotel. Turned it back in a few days later, mission accomplished, and probably six weeks after that, I got a letter, uh, obviously a computer-generated letter that says, hey, and I'm paraphrasing here, hey, you damaged our car, send us some money, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I wrote back a letter to them said, no, I didn't, <laughs> and they wrote me back a letter and said, yeah, you did, here's the proof, and it wasn't proof, it was a bill, 
from the auto body shop. Apparently I had scratched the side of the car or something. And I wrote back and I said, that's not proof, that's a bill, <laughs> right? Doesn't mean that I did it. I want evidence. I'm willing to play ball if I really did something here, but I'm not sure that I did. I have no recollection of this happening. I sent it in and I got a nice letter that I could tell was hand typed and signed by an executive that said, hey, we value your business. We see that you rent a lot of cars from us and we really like that you do that. And we have gone ahead and taken care of the damages and we're excited to have you rent a car from us again soon. And it was just refreshing to see them own up, to see them take care of a problem because I was getting to the point where I was starting to think about, do I like these guys that much? <laughs> Am I going to go somewhere else? And they took care of it. So, hey, you know what? I, maybe along the lines of guarantee, Kurt, maybe I was a dirtbag and maybe I did damage that car, right? Maybe that happened. And I'm just looking at how they're viewing this. But I think ultimately they took a look at my rental record and realized how much money I give them every year and said, this isn't worth it. We want to keep renting cars to this guy. So they're the ninja of the week, national car rental. They handled it the right way because they could fix it for what, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, even if you did do it, which you didn't. One of the reasons I don't rent with Hertz, right? I don't yeah. rent with Hertz because big challenge like this. I didn't do it. They said I did. They wanted money. I'm like, you know, both of us rent a lot of cars and we're going to be loyal to car rental companies because they treat you right, right? They don't have to stand at the counters. They realize that, you know what, this could uh, cost us a lot more money in the long run. Yeah, yeah, it's always nice. And I'll actually do a blunder next week where a, a large medical chain failed to realize this. So I ended up taking the small claims court and winning over it. And it's just, oh, yeah, it'll be fun to hear. Yeah, it'll be a good one. So we'll talk about that next week on the show. Or maybe we won't. We'll see how Oman goes for you. <laughs> yeah, to see if I melt or not. You just might. I like your chances. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, all right, Kurt, thanks a lot for another great show. Listeners, thank you very much for another good show as well. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at InfluenceMax and also like us on Facebook. I'm told we are on Instagram and Pinterest and a variety of other things. And I will one day figure out how that works and how to explain it to you. But uh, for now, we're there. <laughs> so thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week on another episode of Maximize Your Influence. Thanks for listening and persuade with power.